Timothy Seaton, an inscription on the Temple of Apollo at Delphi and attributed to the pre-Socratic philosopher Thales of Miletus. In English, this phrase famously translates as Know Thyself. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this is the 23rd episode of The Greek Sun, a series of podcasts that I'm writing about the ancient Greek world and its impact on Western civilization. Recently, I've been talking about the Peloponnesian War and the political and cultural events that surrounded that era of Greek life as well. So today, I want to begin our investigation into Greek philosophy. When I use that phrase... Greek philosophy, people invariably think, first of all, of famous names like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, in addition perhaps to some other notable personages in Greek history, such as Diogenes the Cynic. And rest assured, I will spend most of my podcast time on those individuals and their contributions to Western philosophy in future episodes. However, philosophy was born before Socrates appeared in educated Athenian circles in the late 5th century BC. We do not, however, have a lot in the way of documentation of the earliest days of philosophy. One of the reasons Plato and Socrates are considered to be bedrock Greek philosophy by so many people is because we have so much of Plato's writing about Socrates still in existence today. Nevertheless, with this first episode about Greek philosophy, let's learn what we can about those who first dared to think about the world and life in terms that did not involve gods and their whims, but rather in terms of the natural laws of the world. Now, this episode is in no way intended to be a thorough examination of any philosopher or philosophy. The real focus of the podcast remains historical, but it is impossible to understand history in any way without some knowledge of the cultural ideas that flowed through each era. So the content of this episode will be a brief, and I mean brief, survey of early Greek philosophy. You may have noticed by now that the podcast occasionally diverges from the straight and narrow path from the past to the present. That is probably noticeable for the first time really here in this Greek series. Already I have started a sequence of episodes about within the historical context about Greek drama. This sequence here will be about philosophy and there are going to be others about math and about science and all while the main thrust of the series focuses on the historical path, the chronological. However, in the future, I plan to do several parallel series about these matters, about philosophy, about the development of mathematics and ancient astronomy and so on. If today's episode leaves you wanting to know more about men like Thales and Democritus, about monism and atomism and so on, then I hope you'll join me when those episodes come out. In the meantime, let's meet the first Greek philosophers. We have certainly heard a little bit about theology already in this podcast. Think of all the worldviews, the perspective on the universe, and the meaning of human life within it, all those theologies that we have heard. 
from the Sumerians and the Egyptians all the way down to Greek mythology. They explained to people how the world was made and how humans appeared on earth. Now, in this coming sequence of episodes about Greek philosophy, I would mislead you if I caused you to think that philosophy is the child of theology or even its brother. Actually, though, they, they both, these desires to explain the world, theology and philosophy, they really spring from the same source, a source far back in human prehistory. Sometime in the deep past of the human race, and I mean the very deep past, maybe millions of years ago, but at least hundreds of thousands of years ago, humans separated themselves from all other animals, not when they first picked up a rock to scrape meat from the bone of an animal kill, nor when they first used fire to warm their bodies or ward off dangerous animals. No, what really distinguished humans, or hominids perhaps, from the animals for the first time came long before all of that, and it was one simple thought. At some point in our history, we humans looked at the world around us and we asked ourselves, what are all these things? You see, as far as we can tell anyway, animals do not ponder when they observe the surrounding world. They detect threats, they smell food, they seek to satisfy primal desires for sex, thirst for water, and so on. Thus, they carry on from day to day. It is only us, and perhaps our ape brothers and cousins, because who can deny when they watch a documentary on chimpanzees or gorillas when they observe one of those primates sitting and staring with those almost human eyes at the world around them, who can deny that they seem to be contemplating something profound? But anyway, it's only us higher primates anyway, who look at the world around us and wonder at it and we ask ourselves questions about it. And that first real question before any other, the first real question we probably asked ourselves is, what are all these things? What are all these plants and animals and rocks? How did they get here? What is water? Why do I get thirsty and drink it? What is the sun? Why does it come up in the east and go down in the west? One question would lead to endless questions, endless curiosity. And when someone proposed an answer, these things are here because God made it so. This was perhaps both a philosophical and a theological answer, an explanation that allowed you to move on and consider the next question. You might, I suppose, say that theology was the first emanation of philosophy, the first answer to these questions about the meaning of life, the answer as to the origin of all things. But I'm sure there are many other ways of ordering these two concepts or areas of study. Philosophy and theology are companion terms, really, then, both intertwined in their purpose and vocabulary and simultaneously, especially in the present age anyway, at odds with one another. Among its many purposes, theology seeks to explain the way that divine beings interact with the world. Theology answers, then, in divine terms, certain primordial questions, such as, what are these things? How does the sun move through the sky? Where does it go? Why does it do that? And so on. Theology explains these things and the world in general, its origin, how it functions from day to day. Consider how in Greek mythology they imagined Helios drawing the sun across the sky with his chariot every day, or how they might have explained the ocean's movements as the will of Poseidon. And Jews and Christians, for example, even if they may think differently in private today, they, they both subscribe publicly anyway 
to the theological explanation that God created the world in seven stages or days and that the human race began when God created a man and a woman directly out of the soil of the earth. Sometime in the 6th century BC, however, and possibly before, certain Greeks sought to interpret the world around them not in terms of divine intervention, but rather in terms of the natural laws of the world, to observe the natural world, its fundamentals and its events, and explain them rationally without relying on pat responses that simply attributed things such as eclipses and earthquakes to the will of the gods. They wanted to demystify the world around them and make it make sense, as we say now. Perhaps there was a desire for some predictability in all the events of life, some desire to know and perhaps even come to control the chaos of life. And they wanted to use reason to expand these, on these things and not the glib religious explanations usually used to describe the world. And when I say world, understand that I do not simply mean planet Earth beneath us, but rather I speak of all of the universe and all of reality, actually. They wanted to know what was primary. What was the reality beneath all things, the reality beneath reality? Another thing you may note, especially if you get deeper into your own study of philosophy, is that the Greeks wanted to learn what this world, this universe and all that is in it, what it was made of and how it functioned. Mythology told them things like who made the world and roughly when it was made. Now they wanted to know what substance underlay the whole thing. How did it sustain itself? Notably, though, they did not seem interested in why the world was made. This, perhaps more than anything else, distinguishes Greek philosophy from the Christian mythos that has come to dominate Western civilization since 2,000 years ago. In the very first lesson of the Roman Catholic Catechism, taught to children around the world for centuries, you will find this question to be memorized and recited. Why did God make you? The answer given in the Catechism is, God made me to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, and to be happy with him forever in the next. This was not a particular area of interest for the Greek philosophers, this why. They wanted to know what the world was made of and how it all worked together, not so much why it or we were made. While we're on the topic, let me demonstrate at the same time another connection and a distinction between Greek philosophy and Christian thinking. I speak about the Greeks being interested in the substance of things. They had a, a word they used for this underlying primary matter, the word, word was arche, that's A-R-C-H-E, as it's commonly transliterated into English, and it can be translated into English as the word origin, or principle, or beginning. And one of the primary texts of Christianity, the Gospel according to St. John, begins with the following Greek phrase, en arche en halogos, in the beginning was the word or perhaps translated as the origin is the word. The arche is the word. You see, Christians, centuries after the early Greek philosophers asked the question, were simply providing their own answer. Thales thought the arche, the subject, the substance from which everything else was made, he thought the arche was water. And Anaximenes, another Greek philosopher, thought the arche was air. Christians believed that the arche the substance underlying all things, is the word, a man named Jesus from Nazareth. 
Now, before we get any deeper into this topic, though, I should inform you that the early philosophers of ancient Greece were not atheists, though some of them were sometimes accused of atheism, and to be sure, many of them may have harbored their private doubts about their particular culture's religious ideas, but they were not rabid, angry atheists like you see today in the public sphere. Indeed, men like Thales, whom I will discuss in the next segment, stated that all things were full of gods. And according to his biographer Diogenes Laertius, who lived and wrote in the 3rd century AD and who should not be confused with the early Greek philosopher Diogenes, about whom we will learn in a later episode, according to this Diogenes the biographer, Thales said that God was the oldest of all beings, for he existed without a previous cause, even in the way of generation, and that the world was the most beautiful of all things, for it was created by God. Now, men like Thales, rather than being pro- or anti-religious, were simply curious more than anything else. They looked at the world around them with those same contemplative eyes that you see in those primate documentaries that I mentioned, and they asked questions. And the questions were not meant to find alternative answers to those already offered by religion, but rather to discover answers to questions that had not yet even been posed. For example, most religions tell us how the world was made or when it was made, but not as many tell us what it was made of or what shape it is and so on. The pre-Socratic philosophers asked questions about these matters. But I would do wrong if I led you to believe that all Greek philosophers could be easily contained in one category of intellectual investigation. The pre-Socratics discussed in this episode have very different interests than Socrates and Plato and the sophists of their time. And the philosophy of Aristotle in the following generation will also have a notably distinct focus. And each of them also had his own particular area of interest, and they were not all focused entirely on cosmogony. But let's take a look, for starters anyway, in the next segment, at some pre-Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece and see how they began to open the collective human mind with regard to the natural world. I've spent a lot of time in this unit, this unit of episodes about classical Greece, talking about Athens and its importance in the history of ancient Greek culture and its importance in our Western traditions in general. However, philosophy as we know it was not born in Athens. No, the earliest philosophers sprung up in a variety of different places in the Greek world, although it's fair to say that most of these philosophers were Ionian Greeks, speakers of the Ionian dialect of Greek, like that spoken in Athens, and citizens typically of one of the many Ionian colonies and settlements spread around the Mediterranean. Now, why this was, why so many philosophers were Ionian Greeks, is a matter of opinion. Perhaps it was due to the Ionian Greeks' increased exposure to foreign ideas and cultures, since more of their colonies, especially those in Anatolia, were in areas that experienced significant trade with Egypt and the rest of the Near East. Perhaps, according to this argument, this exposure to different cultures encouraged people to think freely about these matters, to doubt their own myths, their own religious stories, and to begin to explore new ideas. Personally, I find this reasoning difficult to follow. 
since the very beginning of civilization, whenever that may have been, it was at least 10,000 years ago, ever since then there have been people on the border of one culture with another, and as far as we can tell, none of them began to dissect the world in the way that the earliest Greek philosophers did. And there were also Mesopotamians at this time living in close quarters with foreigners and Egyptians living next to foreigners, so why didn't they come up with philosophy? Of course, maybe they did, and their writings have all been lost, but it seems more likely to me that it had more to do with centuries of civilization finally bringing us up to a certain point in which it was possible for these questions to be asked. But there'll be more on that in this episode's conclusion. And yet, I I think also, though, that there was probably something innate in the Greek character, something hard to put my finger on, something that encouraged them to be the first to delve into these matters. All we know for certain is that sometime in the early 6th century BC, these non-religious ideas about the substance of the world and its functioning began spreading around the Greek world, particularly, and starting primarily, in Ionian settlements. The first of all these philosophers that we know about was a man named Thales. Thales was born in the late 7th century BC in Miletus, one of those Ionian cities on the coast of Anatolia. Thales, later in the classical era, was recognized as one of the seven sages of Greece. I have spoken of these sages before in a previous episode when I mentioned that Solon of Athens was also considered one of these seven men from early classical Greece, mostly lawmakers, who contributed most to the historical magnificence of the Greek people. Though we have no written work of Thales extant today, and possibly he never wrote anything, he is still considered that fundamental to Greek thought and culture that he was considered one of those seven great men. Now, when we think today of philosophy, most of us probably start to think of topics such as ethics and vocabulary like right and wrong, justice, crime, punishment, and so on. But like all of the pre-Socratic philosophers, Thales was primarily interested in cosmogony, that is, the explanation of the origins and the substance of the world around us. And like all his brethren among the early philosophers, he was particularly interested in the primary substance of which everything, all things, all people, all matter, the substance of which all was made. Today, we believe that the answer to this question, what is everything made of, we believe that the answer is molecules and atoms and, of course, all the subatomic particles that make up atoms. Since there were no microscopes in Thales' time, he was forced to speculate to some extent about this matter, as all natural philosophers of his era did. According to Thales, all things were made from water, not just the water in the oceans and the rivers, but Even the solid earth beneath our feet, and even ourselves, we were all made fundamentally from water. Now, this was more than just speculation, though. The pre-Socratics observed as best they could, and some later commentators suggest that Thales may have noticed that all things, animals, plants, soil, etc., all things had a relative amount of moisture, with some things, like rocks, being extremely dry and the water itself being the wettest. And perhaps this led him to think that the arche of everything was water. And the Greeks were limited into what they could suggest as answers, since if you were forced to rely on your eyes and your other senses, there appear to be only four elementary substances, or four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. Anaximenes, another philosopher from Miletus, born around 40 years after Thales, Anaximenes, for example, believed that all things were made from air. Now, 
This focus on trying to coordinate your ideas about the universe so that you could declare that it was all made out of one substance may seem a little odd to our modern ears at first. As in, why try to force this matter so much? Why try to bend over backwards to show that everything is made from water or from air or from fire, etc.? It may seem primitive or even silly, but recognize that we are still doing this today that our greatest minds today are following in the footsteps of men like Thales, that the Large Hadron Collider in Switzerland is continuing the same investigation. The men and women working and studying at the Large Hadron Collider are still are trying to determine, among other things, just exactly what is the underlying substance of all matter. The difference today is that we now have the technology and the instrumentation to discover atoms and subatomic particles and investigate them more closely. The earliest Greek philosophers, then, were really scientists, but they were scientists without instruments and without a method of determining truth. That is, they had not yet come to work out empiricism and the scientific method, the development of which I will also get into in later episodes. But the pre-Socratics were getting there. They were taking the first steps toward our modern scientific and mathematical approaches. To Thales, for instance, are attributed several discoveries in basic geometry, such as he proved that the circle is bisected by its diameter. He posited numerous ideas about celestial objects, some more accurate than others, and he suggested that the, he suggested that the moon was reflecting the sun's light, and he predicted solar eclipses. It was also a fellow, a, a fellow philosopher of Thales, a man named Anaximander, not to be confused with the already mentioned Anaximenes. It was this Anaximander, living in the 6th century BC, who proposed the first cosmological idea that really ties into our own modern thinking about the universe. Anaximander believed that the Earth was floating in something that he called the infinite, in other words, he challenged earlier ideas, like that of Thales. Thales suggested that the earth was floating in water. Without using these exact words then, Anaximander proposed that the earth was instead floating in empty space, and that the other celestial objects were revolving around it and floating in that same quote-unquote infinite, as he called it. Any discussion of early Greek philosophy would be entirely incomplete without mentioning Pythagoras. Most people today will probably remember the name Pythagoras immediately from their high school geometry class. He is responsible for that mathematical proof showing that the sum of the squares of the two sides of a right triangle are equal to the square of its hypotenuse. Like other philosophers of this time period, Pythagoras was acutely interested in explaining and describing the natural world and in discovering its fundamental realities and the laws that govern it. To this man, we accredit the discovery or revelation, really, of the five regular solids, that is, the tetrahedron, the cube, the octahedron, the dodecahedron, and the icosahedron. However, like many of the stories about Pythagoras, we cannot be too sure of such detail. All the great men of this period, their lives are shrouded in legends, and while we feel with a fair amount of certainty that they did indeed exist, we cannot be too sure about the specifics of their lives. Now, unlike the other philosophers that we have discussed so far, 
Uh, Pythagoras was indeed interested in more than just describing natural laws. He was interested in showing how to live the best life, how people should live with one another in harmony. And in this, we can compare him to philosophers more familiar to us today. But Pythagoras did more than ask questions and posit various possibilities about the meaning of life like Socrates did. Pythagoras had some pretty concrete ideas. At somewhere around the age of 40, he moved from his home, which was probably on the island of Samos, where he may have led a school to which the greatest Greek minds came to study. Pythagoras left this island and the school behind and moved west to the coast of southern Italy to the Greek colony of Croton. And Croton, he was finally able to bring all his philosophical ideas to life. He formed a community there which attracted like-minded people, people who knew of his teachings and wanted to follow them more closely. Today, we might call this sort of arrangement a cult. People abandoned their property and, and their goods and even their way of life, and they came to live with him in Croton. Like Pythagoras, they ate a vegetarian diet and they lived communally without personal possessions, and studied philosophy and geometry all day, and believed in reincarnation and the transmigration of souls. The exact philosophical or theological term for Pythagoras' beliefs about reincarnation is metempsychosis, which sounds like a psychological disorder, but really it means, it means the belief that all souls are immortal and that after death, each soul is reborn into a new body to lead a new life. Now, it may be controversial for me to say this, but a lot of people assume when they hear this that the Greeks borrowed this idea of reincarnation of souls from the ancient Hindus in India. However, while it is popular to attribute many thousands of years to such beliefs in India, the truth is that there's no documentation to back this up. There's no real proof that anyone in India believed this 2,500 years ago when Pythagoras lived. And it's just as possible that the idea of reincarnation is originally a Western one and not an original product of Eastern mysticism and philosophy, that it flourished, of all places, in the Mediterranean. More likely, though, I think that the idea of reincarnation was probably one that did not have a single location of origin, but rather bubbled up here and there in one form or another, just like the idea of a dying and rising God appeared and flourished in more than one place, as did the concept of eternal reward or punishment. I don't think any one culture or religion ever came up with such ideas, but rather they appeared, as these ideas uh, these ideas do here and there, and they form and reformulate, circulating among the people, becoming religious ideas without ever being under any official control until much later in their development. Anyway, though, the study of mathematics and geometry was also crucial to Pythagorean living. His followers understood that the heavenly bodies moved according to mathematical principles, and they also believed many things about the symbolical significance of numbers, that even numbers were, that even numbers were feminine and that odd numbers were masculine, and that the triangle represented the god Apollo. Women were apparently given more freedom of appearance and speech as well in his community, when compared to typical Greek society anyway. Pythagoras is also said to have engaged in prophecy, to have worn only white garments, and to have restricted followers from meeting with him personally until after passing a five-year initiation period. There are many more stories told about Pythagoras, but there's really no reason to recount them here because they're really little more than legends. Nevertheless, he had a great impact on Greek philosophy and later on Christianity. 
Plato is said to have learned Pythagoreanism before becoming a disciple of Socrates. And many Christian theologians and writers, such as Eusebius and St. Augustine, spoke admiringly of the asceticism and the self-denial of Pythagoras, even if they obviously rejected some of his other ideas. And Dante used much of the Pythagorean numerology in his Divine Comedy, written nearly 2,000 years after Pythagoras was born. Several intriguing theories about existence itself emerge among various philosophers during this time period. Heraclitus was a Greek philosopher born in Ephesus sometime in the 6th century before Christ. He believed that all things were made from fire, that fire was the arche, the underlying substance of all things, as opposed to water or air or earth. He is also remembered for his belief in the centrality and the importance of flux, of flow, of an ever-changing existence. And his belief that fire was the arche probably had something to do with this, because heat or its lack changes things in an obvious fashion, burning or drying things out, warming you up when it was present or cooling you down when it was lacking. You've probably heard the phrase, you never step in the same river twice. Heraclitus is accredited with this remark and all that it entails. But Heraclitus also described each man as an ever-changing entity too, and he said that it wouldn't even be the same man who stepped in the river the second time. Now, there's a tendency sometimes to distinguish between so-called Eastern philosophy and Western philosophy, and some will say or suggest that Western philosophy is dry and legalistic, focused on reason and logic, and that Eastern philosophy is more mystical, quote-unquote deeper, also more psychological and penetrating with enigmatic statements that provoke more profound and wider-ranging thought. But this is really ignorant and an erroneous examination of our Western traditions. You do not have to look far among the early Greek philosophers to find much that we see or hear about in the East. I have already brought up belief in reincarnation. Here with Heraclitus, we also see, we also see many seemingly esoteric statements. And the man loved his paradoxes, or at least he liked pairing opposites. Here is an element, elementary fragment of Heraclitus's thought. Cold things warm up, the hot cools off, wet becomes dry, dry becomes wet. But Heraclitus takes us much deeper after this introduction to the existence of opposites, of dualities. Here's a lesson from, from him, just another step deeper into the comp contemplation of unity and opposition. Mortals are immortals, and immortals are mortals, the one living the other's death and dying the other's life. If you came here to contemplate the philosophy rather than history, I think now is a good time to pause the episode and just consider that statement. That's one you can chew on for a while, right? Mortals are immortals, and immortals are mortals. The one living the other's death and dying the other's life. Here's something, another step down into the thought of Heraclitus, a quote reported by Plutarch, from whom we have learned so much about the lives of ancient Greeks and from whom we will continue to hear for many years to come. Heraclitus, according to Plutarch, the master of opposites, once said, The same thing inside each of us is living and dead, waking and sleeping, young and old, 
For these things, having changed around, are those, and those, in turn, having changed around, are these. I won't pretend to walk away from the recording of this episode completely able to grasp all of Heraclitus' thought here, but maybe that is what is greatest about good philosophy. It leaves you thinking about and reconsidering everything about reality. I will leave Heraclitus behind with one more quote that perhaps adequately sums up his approach to philosophy. The way up is the way down. Parmenides is another name over which we cannot pass, even in this abbreviated survey of Greek philosophy. He was born in the late 6th century BC in the Greek colony of Elea in southern Italy. That's E-L-E-A, Elea. He wrote a famous poem titled On Nature, but I should warn you if you're going to look for it that many of his contemporaries wrote works with the exact same title as did many later philosophers, even more modern ones. This title on nature does not refer to nature in the green sylvan sense. It's not an environmental work, but rather an ontological work. Now, let me break that phrase down for you, because it's important for anyone who wants to think about philosophy. Ontology, that's O-N-T-O-L-O-G-Y, ontology is the study of the nature of being, of existence. In that sense, it is different than, say, theology, but the two are not opposites. You may have your own ontology and a theology and a philosophy. Rather, ontology is an area of thought which focuses on how we exist. In Parmenides' poem, which only survives in fragments, he places a great deal of focus on distinguishing between truth and opinion. Truth being what is real and opinion being what is illusory or simply non-existent. That is, what is, is, and what is not, is not. Perhaps the best way to sum up Parmenides' thoughts on existence is his statement that all is one. Let me repeat that. All is one. It might be easy to brush this aside as some sort of new-agey mantra that we're all one, let's have a group hug and live in peace and so on, but Parmenides is not making a statement about brotherly love, though he's, he's not necessarily excluding that idea either. No, this is actually a very important proposition about the nature of being, of existence, of the universe itself, that one must come to grips with when devising one's own take on ontology. Now, Parmenides was a monist, that's M-O-N-I-S-T, a monist. Now, monists come in different stripes and flavors. You've already heard some monist thinking with regard to everything being made of a single substance, such as water, air, fire. Those philosophers were all getting at the same thing, that all reality can be reduced to one thing, one substance, one underlying reality. Today, we still search for that underlying reality, the particle, for instance, that is the basis for all the particles that make up the matter within us and around us. But we do it with particle colliders instead of theories. But theory is virtually all that the early philosophers had. Remember, they had no instruments. And they were the ones who began the necessary prerequisite thought processes, which would eventually lead us to discover the scientific method. But Parmenides was interested in more than simply the underlying physical substance of all things. He was curious about existence itself. Not just that I 
sit here before a computer as a mass of flesh and blood, but that I think and I feel and I simply am. I exist. My thoughts and my flesh and my character and my motivations and so on. Everything. Existence. He wanted to understand how it is that existence is. Why isn't there simply nothing? How do things exist at all? Again, not why, but how. This is not a search for the meaning of life, but a more pragmatic question about the mechanics of it all. How is it that matter and all of reality are here? This is a deep subject matter, this issue of existence, a matter that I cannot give enough space to, really, within the context of a single podcast episode, not within years of podcast episodes. So I'll save it for a future series that will delve deeper into the subject of Greek philosophy. But before we leave Parmenides, let me tell you another one of his theories, that not only is all existence one, but that one, that one thing that is existence is also a perfect sphere. All divisions and all separations that we imagine, all that we declare, all these are simply arbitrary and ultimately false. Because all is the one. All is that perfect sphere of being, and we are all a part of it, as is all matter and all thought and all sensation. All is the one whom forever exists, born from out of eternity, changeless, and infinite. Now, Parmenides is remembered as one of the Eleatics, that is, a philosopher from Elea, his hometown in southern Italy because there is a whole bevy of such men produced by that prodigious little town and by the school of thought which they created. Zeno, born in 490 BC, was another Eleatic, and his name may ring a bell for your ears if Parmenides did not. Zeno was a monist, just like Parmenides, and he, he sought to provide logical proof for the unity of all being and the falsity of all concepts of division. He conceived a series of paradoxes for which he is remembered, and with one or more of which you might be familiar. However, not many know that these paradoxes, which may seem amusing or perplexingly cute on the surface, were designed to show that things such as motion, distance, even time and space itself, all these things are illusions. Because remember, all is one. There are no divisions. Motion does not exist because there's no time to move and no other place to go to. All is one, and everything is already here, now. There are substantially no differences and no distinctions, no pieces or places or individuals or anything separate. All is one. It is just your imperfect senses that tell you otherwise. Consider the paradox remembered as Achilles and the tortoise. This is one of Zeno's challenges to contemporary thought of his time. Achilles is a fast runner, the fastest, and the tortoise, of course, is a slow plotter. Let's put them to a race, shall we? A hundred-yard dash, let's say. But let's give the tortoise a little head start so that he at least has a chance of beating Achilles, right? But how much of a head start shall we give the tortoise? Ten yards? Ninety yards? As it turns out, the quantity of the head start that you, you give the tortoise doesn't matter, 
because Achilles can never catch the tortoise. <clears throat> now, this is obviously false on the surface. We know that Achilles, or just about any of us, provided we are able-bodied in just the most minimal sense, any of us could beat that tortoise in a race, unless it was set right on the finish line at the start of the race or something. But listen to Zeno's reasoning here as to why even the great runner Achilles could not beat that turtle who got a head start. Now, in order to beat the tortoise in the foot race, Achilles must first catch up to his four-legged opponent, right? So let's go. Let's, let's start the race. Both Achilles and the tortoise start moving toward the distant finish line, the tortoise with a head start. So let's say in the first few seconds of the race that Achilles reaches the point where the tortoise was at the beginning of the race with his head start. Now, the tortoise isn't there at this moment now, right? He's moved on some meager amount forward, and he's still just a little ahead of Achilles at this moment. <clears throat> now, having reached where the tortoise was at the beginning of the race with his head start, now Achilles must reach where the tortoise is presently, perhaps just a few feet ahead of him at this point. So Achilles keeps running, and he reaches that spot, that place where the tortoise was, where he was, right? Because now the tortoise would have moved even a little bit more ahead. And so Achilles has not quite caught the turtle yet. So Achilles must keep moving to the place where the tortoise is, now just a few inches ahead of him, possibly. And Achilles does this, still running. He reaches the point where the tortoise, who had a head start, where the tortoise was just a second or even less than a second ago. Except the tortoise never stopped moving, you see. So, so now he's a little beyond just a little beyond where he was a moment ago. And so Achilles must now reach that new spot in order to catch up to and hopefully surpass his opponent. <clears throat> you can see where this is going, hopefully. In this example, Achilles is not only not going to beat his opponent in the 100-yard dash, even if the turtle got just a one-yard head start. Achilles, in fact, will never even catch up to the turtle. Now... We all know that this is not true. We know that Achilles will certainly beat the turtle in a race, and this is perhaps part of the point of the paradox. Zeno sees all these things, the motion and the distance covered, as illusions, lies really, because all is really one, and the one is perfect and motionless and eternal and infinite. You see, Zeno would argue that Achilles, the tortoise, and all of us are really motionless from the perspective of the one. I know this isn't easy to get across in a brief podcast. Examination of monist thought is the sort of thing people get PhDs in. They spend their lives studying it, so you're, you're just going to have to be satisfied for the moment with these teasing portions of philosophy. I'm sorry. Here's another paradox, though, that may make things a little clearer, or less so. It's called the arrow paradox. Let's say you fire an arrow. It flies through the air. And although Zeno did not have a camera in his time, he essentially sort of imagines a camera in this paradox. And so he stops the quote-unquote film of this event at a particular moment in time, at a particular moment of this event as the arrow flies through the air. So with me now, envision this arrow at this particular moment in time and position in space, just as Zeno did. Now, time is essentially a series of instants of moments, tiny pieces of time, one following the other. Even the ancient Greeks recognized this. At any given point of time, everything is where it is, and it is no place else. So this arrow is at a particular point in space during some particular moment in time, and it is nowhere else. Now, 
Can it get to the next point in its journey? Can the arrow reach the next particular point in space in its flight from your bow to its destination? No, Zena would tell us, it cannot. How could it? To reach the next point, time would have to elapse, correct? But if the arrow is at a particular point in space for every particular point in time, how could it travel between these points? Point A has a particular instant of time associated with it, and so does point B. Each point has one of two particular and sequential instants of time associated with it. So during what passage of time could the arrow travel from point A to point B if we have no units of time to assign to the space between them? Now, we have not yet reached the era of ancient Greece in which I will talk about Diogenes the Cynic, many people's favorite philosopher. But I will point out here that Diogenes, living in the next century, once sat down and listened or started to listen to a lecture about Zeno's view of reality and his paradoxes. He listened to this assertion that motion was an illusion. And Diogenes, as you might expect, simply demonstrated the reality of motion and the error of Zeno's philosophy, philosophy by simply getting up and walking out of the lecture. And while we may all applaud that solution, it is probably because we misunderstand the point that Zeno was trying to make. He was certainly not trying to tell someone that they could not appear to get up and walk out of a lecture. Rather, Zeno's point, and the point of the rest of the Manus, was a much more profound one about the nature of reality, of the world, and of existence that the inviolable oneness of all existence ultimately meant that nothing could really happen or change or move, and that even time was in stasis, and that the passage of time and the changing appearance and movement of things were all simply indicative of our own, of our own inability to see, to experience the oneness of all things, that our senses were lying to us, that they misperceived reality. But again, this is too deep a, sub a subject for one podcast. I look forward to one day doing a parallel series of podcasts about this era of Greek philosophy, and I, I hope you'll join me then, even if time is an illusion. contrast to the Eleatics and the Manus, there were other streams of thought in ancient Greek philosophy, other focuses of interest. Take, for example, Anaxagoras, who subscribed to, in some sense, or at least admired Manus thought, but clarified that all things, rather than being made of one elementary particle, were really a mixture of all the four elements to one degree or another. All was made of fire, water, earth, and wind in mixed proportion. Anaxagoras is also responsible for the development of another term important to philosophy, and that is the concept of the nous. That's N-O-U-S. Forgive my pronunciation. The nous, according to Anaxagoras, is the element within us that makes us alive. It may be easiest for us today to think of this nous as the spirit or soul, but Anaxagoras, anyway, did not make that exact statement. He seemed to consider the nous to be an additional element, that is, in addition to the wind, fire, water, and earth that constitute everything that exists. But only living things have this additional nous in them. Democritus also falls among the pre-Socratic philosophers, but since he was born sometime around 460 BC in Thrace, and he did not die until around 370 BC, 
He really was a contemporary of Socrates and would have even been around the same age. Anyway, Democritus was not afraid to confront the monists, those who believed that the universe and all that was in it were really just one thing, that all existence was one, eternal, and an unsullied sphere. Now, one result of monist thought was the following understanding, that what is, is, and what is not, is not. It seems pretty obvious and simple on its face that things which are exist and things which are not do not exist. But then with your own modern understanding of things, ask yourself if the void exists. In other words, consider the vacuum of space. Does it exist? Does the emptiness of space exist? I mean, there's nothing there. So if you think that the void exists, you would have to take exception to this otherwise very agreeable idea that that which is not, is not. This philosophy stuff gets pretty tricky. That's one reason why this episode's not going to be 10 hours long. If you are really into this stuff, you can read the works of these and many other great philosophers, or you can turn in, tune in when I finally get around to making that parallel series focusing on Greek philosophy. Anyway, Democritus turned the monist idea that, that motion had to be an illusion because all was one and unchanging, he turned this idea on its head. He just started with a different presupposition. He stated that since we know that motion exists, then there really are both things that are and things that are not, such as the void between things. Democritus is also famous for positing that the world is made up of atoms moving in these void spaces. Yes, the concept of the atom, which seems so modern, really dates back to ancient Greece. Granted, Democritus had nothing to say about protons and electrons and such, but he did believe that you could keep dividing things down until you finally reached an elementary and indivisible particle, which he called the atom. The atom, though, in the view of the atomists, which is what we call these philosophers, these rebels against monism, in some way the atom, as they perceived it, the atom itself resembled the monist idea of the one, since the atom was, according to their theories, each atom was eternal and indivisible. Which is interesting, because while we do believe that the atom is divisible, at least briefly, it can be split into subatomic particles, most physicists would agree that each atom is darn near eternal having been born very early in the universe, and apparently each of them is likely to last for about 10 septillion years. 10 septillion, that's a one with 25 zeros after it. It's not even known if the universe will last that long, so yeah, atoms as we understand them today are practically eternal. The atomist ideas give rise to a number of concepts and understanding of the world around us. They believed in determinism, which is still a popular belief today, really. They believed that due to the motion of atoms, which had been put into motion at the beginning of the universe, everything that happens is really a result of the movement of those atoms, which got their first push at the beginning of time. And now there's no escaping the results of those movements, which dictate even our actions today. Essentially, one place you can take this thinking is to say that everything happens as a development of those atoms moving, and nothing is therefore random, but all a part of the tapestry of events that result from their flowing through time. 
There are many more great and important philosophers from this time period and countless theories proposed by them. And again, I don't have the time or the knowledge to properly explain it all now. What is most important is that you understand the intellectual environment in which the great men and women of classical Greece were living. In particular, I want you to know something about the milieu in which Socrates and Plato lived, because in the next two episodes about philosophy, I will focus on the ideas of these men and the way that the Greek world, and the rest of the world really, how they reacted to these ideas, and how we continue to react to their ideas. Before I go, something about these philosophers that really distinguishes them from anyone that came before. Philosophers are worthy of note not just because of their ideas, but because they are the first people, really, who do what they do for the sake of doing it, not for their daily bread. You see, when we were hunter-gatherers, everyone was a hunter-gatherer. When we began farming, we slowly left off hunting and gathering, and then everyone was a farmer. Then people began to specialize as population and resources allowed. Some people became blacksmiths, some miners, some herdsmen. Others became part of the authority structure, kings, soldiers, priests, etc. But all these people, even the priests, they did what they did in order to eat. Whether you were a farmer, a pastoralist, a priest, a king, a shoemaker, a merchant, or whatever, you did it to survive, and you spent most of your time focused on that trade or profession in order to be sure of your earning your keep and having enough to eat. Remember how even nobles and kings in the past were often paid in quantities of wheat or, let's say, cattle? Failure to make such payments meant that the king would not simply not have fine clothing or nice jewelry, but he could even starve. For most of our existence on this planet, even our leaders were just barely above subsistence level. The philosopher, however, at least at the beginning, did not earn his way through life with his philosophy. It was not something that paid his way, not something that put food on the table. Not until it became much more popular and people began to get paid to speak and teach in schools. Thales, though, back in 6th century BC, he didn't earn money for his theorizing on the unity of being and his observations about the arche of all things being water. I'm not sure there's anything like a philosopher in that sense prior to the 6th century BC. And this can be interpreted in a number of ways. Myself, it occurs to me that this is another sign of the progress of civilization that there are now in the 6th century BC, in the 5th century BC, there are now enough people and enough resources for people, some people anyway, to have time to think about these matters, to think about them deeply, to finally spend more time thinking about all those things that our most distant ancestors thought about, maybe sitting in the trees of the jungle in Africa to answer all those questions, to understand what are these things. And it's a sign of continued progress now that nearly all of us today, nearly all of us can set aside time to think about these matters, even if we cannot devote our lives to them. Now, I started this episode with a quote from Thales, the most primordial of Greek philosophers. Know thee seaton, know thyself. Yet, I have really not delved into any of the philosophy about self, about self-reflection. Rather, I've I've focused mainly so far on the pre-Socratic obsession, you might call it, with the very nature of being. 
In the next two episodes, however, I will introduce perhaps the most famous name in Greek philosophy, Socrates, and try to explain his take on philosophy and on his more individual-oriented take on things, on his quest to understand himself and others, and how his pupil, Plato, turned one man's speculations in these areas into a library of dialogues which impacted our Western tradition so strongly that we're still discussing their ideas today, over 2,000 years later. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.